Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Master Mentors podcast. Um, I wasn't on it last week, and um, I think really, when we said that Luke had passed away, like Jesus, the man has risen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually think that this episode will probably be going out very quickly or even in conjunction with last week's episode so it might not be such a surprise. So he rose real quick. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants to throw it off the scent that I would done that last one. Yeah. Uh, my power. You know, so uh, Paul, Ross and myself, um, no Jimbo um, and we are covering some interesting topics today. Um, we're going to be talking books which means a heavy uh, occurrence of Tolkien I imagine. I think that's going to be a better as it does um which comes as a surprise i don't think we've ever talked talked about that before i don't think anyone knows that ross yeah. Has yeah. if anyone doesn't know i like lord of the rings um, yeah. um it might be shocking i realize guys but stay with them yeah and uh no and then uh some stuff around client retention um finishing up with some training related stuff in the form of discussing back offsets and the use of cuffs and training so that should be cool um but starting off we had a, uh, a question around books that made us better coaches. Um, and that's a very broad topic. And there's lots of things we can discuss there. And uh, Paul is going to go through his bookshelf behind him one by one, followed by me going through the, the ones behind me one by one. So this podcast is going to be around seven hours. <laughs> this is only one bookshelf as well. There are many of these. Uh, so we can go through it. It's a, I think it's an interesting question and a, a good question and i think some people are going to be drawn towards book learning more than others would be one of the first things i say and that might even be evident even in this call between us that some of us might be drawn a bit more towards reading things some of us learn a bit more practically and that kind of combination so even if you hear these things and you decide i want to go and read that book because i like what they just said that does not mean that that is going to be one of the better ways to learn that particular topic like i would start by saying there is no book that I have read that really helped me master mechanics all that well. 
Like that stuff was learnt with books on the side to refer back to quickly when checking something. But really the, the mastering of that stuff has come from being in person on practical camps, going to workshops, communicating with a mental style figure where you get to play with those things backwards and forwards. So the first bit is like what topics lend themselves well to book learning? Well, I mean, just to be clear, the reason you probably struggle to learn it through uh, books is because Paul can't actually read. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, well, I can read Braille, but it turns out mechanics books in Braille really good. <laughs> These pop-up books, and, and there's not many of those. Um, Colouring in. <laughs> Does it make pop-up books in Braille? Pop-up books. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like stroking this whole cat. <laughs> a mechanics themed pop-up book would be insanely valuable, even to like PTs that are learning it. Because you put like, <laughs> extension, and you put it just pops out, and then you just a pop-up Cybex. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> loading, like look, if you move it like this. <laughs> just like a Watson leg extension. Like, this is shit. <laughs> I got the Cybex Eagle pop-up book series and I just started smoking <laughs> things. I'm just going to make this now. I'm going to miss out. <laughs> it's going to sell four copies and they'll all be to people we know. <laughs> the us, us three and the one yeah. person who's reading it's a good idea. <laughs> anyway, um, um, but no, so yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm in agreement with Paul there that the mechanics books and, and, and ones that people might be familiar with I mean, a very common one that gets bounded about joint structure and function. Um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even go as far as say the Kapanji books that people hear about are mechanics themed because they're more literally in relation to like joints themselves. Like it's very internal, that one, and looking at what's happening inside the body. But from like an appreciation of forces and, and how resistance is applied to us and, you know, central masses and moment arms and things like that. Joint structure is a very good resource there. Joint structure and function by Norkin and Navanji, I believe. Cynthia yeah. Norkin and Navanji. Um, and uh, the, um, yeah, that is a great resource, um, but without any kind of grounding in mechanics from uh, a bit like, you know, a practical element. So having not seen it or experienced it in person, you may struggle. And that's, you know, that's something like we were discussing the other week where I was saying how there's still times where, you know, I've been studying for mechanics for quite a few years now and I'll still pick that book up and look at certain concepts in there in a new light, just based on some things I've played around with in the gym and experienced and things. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. Um, yeah. So mechanics stuff, they're useful for reference more than strict learning, I think. Once you get to a certain level, they're uber useful and really come into their own. Uh, but Otherwise, I think there's other stuff. So for me, like what I've learned from books about coaching and stuff has actually been learning more about the human condition and what human beings are kind of like and insights into why people do stuff. And you can learn lots of that from fiction as well as nonfiction. It doesn't have to just be this particular like, uh, is, this book is directly about coaching. Like I would argue one of the most important books I ever read is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And if you don't know Man's Search for Meaning, so Viktor Frankl was a, an Austrian Auschwitz Holocaust survivor uh, and psychiatrist. And it's his uh, reflections and experiences within Auschwitz and his insistence uh, that human beings always retain the capacity to choose their response. No matter how horrific your circumstances, there seems to be this subset of people that don't 
allow their conditions to dehumanize themselves any more than necessary. Now, it's not the majority of people, but for him, you can see the same lesson found from a guy called Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Soviet system and the gulags. You'll see this idea. And there is even relates to this in psychological research. If anyone is familiar with conformity research, Milgram and Zombardo and Ash and those kinds of people, you'll see this same kind of rough number that about 10 to 20% of people-ish seem to not go along with the crowd even when everyone is going along with awfulness. And so for Frankel, it was that you can take everything from a human being except for one thing, and that is your ability to choose your response regardless of the circumstance you find yourself in. Now, that choice might be between death and something awful. That doesn't mean it's a nice choice. It doesn't mean you survive, but you have something in there that no one can ever take away from. And that you can't dismiss, you could dismiss that. That's just coming from me saying it, sat in my nice room in an air conditioned building with no stress on me. But it means something very different when it's insisted upon by someone who lost every one of his family members in the Holocaust. For that person to still mean that means something very deep compared to someone else saying it. And I would say I learned more from that and from history. I like history stuff. So of course I feel like I learned that than I would from any mechanics stuff. Yeah, but so I'm not a very heavy read. You're missing the point, though, that like we're talking about books that made us a better coach. And I mean, fortunately, that Frankel's book there, like the last, I think, half of it is just a, his training log while he was in Auschwitz. And <laughs> <laughs> the last half of it is, called, is his like more like uh, theoretical stuff that he came up with this thing called logo therapy. So the last half of the book yeah. is actually different to the first half. The first half is the better stuff. But I took way more lessons and they don't always have to be heavy lessons. Like I would say I learned plenty of things from reading Dostoevsky or The Three Musketeers uh, as much as I learned from these harder things or the extremes of the human experience. Like surround yourself with a variety of stuff. You can learn from a whole bunch of different places and you'll start to put things together and pick weird patterns. Or sometimes it's even useful when you're sitting with a client to be able to pull up a story that you remember from this other thing that vaguely relates to what this person is talking uh, in front of you about. And because coaching is about relationships and the more we have of things we're like, oh, that's a bit like this, or the more we can build that connection with someone and sometimes make them feel less alone, the better we tend to do. And reading gives us access to other people's lives that aren't our own they give us access to experiences across time and across cultures that we would not otherwise have and that's really useful when it comes to connection and coaching is a lot about connection i think that's i think that would probably be surprising some people that they were expecting us to be like books that made us better coaches oh it's all going to be training and you know you know arnold's arnold's bodybuilding uh, <laughs> Oh, a bodybuilding bible or something like that <laughs> so yeah, so books that make you a better person are likely to make you a better coach I've read but like, like I wasn't very academic when I think when I left school I would have been as academic as I needed to be to get what I wanted to do and third level blows as far as it went and then I could have got into reading again the first kind of book I picked up in a long time is The Daily Stoic um, which is another big one for me you know just kind of looking at the experiences of incredibly powerful people in history you know that kind of way and then how you know their kind of mindset around things 
allowed them to continue to do so. And, you know, it's just, um, it's an interesting one as well. So for anyone who is like me, who maybe wasn't as academic when they got to this point and kind of, you know, kind of rolled themselves in, that's a really good place to start. Um, you literally read a page a day, you know, and if you get the diary as well, it's by Ryan Holiday, you can then kind of take notes based off the information that you got across that day. Super easy read, you know, really, really enjoyable. does get you thinking first thing in the morning. Really, really good option for people who maybe aren't as, you know, geared in towards actual kind of literature. It's a really, really good place to start. Yeah, especially because, like, the nice thing with those types of books, and that Ryan Holiday one is, is a good one, is, as you said, you can read just a page a day. Most people can make themselves do a page a day, whereas, oh, I mean, I've got to read this whole chapter and this 300-page book. That can seem overwhelming, but you're like, all right, I'll sit down with my coffee, I'll bosh out this small A5 uh, page, sweet, gives me something to think about, that's useful, on we crack. And then some people are going to take that and go, cool, let's go and look at the Stoics a little more. Let's go look at yeah. Marcus exactly. They'll go, yeah, they'll go look at Marcus they'll go read Meditations. Yeah. yeah. happened to me. I ended up going, I was like, what is this Meditations? I'm going to go read that. <laughs> you know, and then you go and you look at it. And then if you're going to read Marcus Aurelius or Seneca as well, get a good translation. The Penguin one's pretty good. I remember first getting a Marcus Aurelius uh, translation of Meditations and it was shite. And I was like, what is the big deal with this? And then I got another version. I was like, oh, the translation is literally like someone did in your old French classes where they took the thing, put it into a translator on Google and then just copied that answer into the thing. I was like, this doesn't read very well. What's going on with this? And I've had that with a couple of different books. I remember having it with a, a Nietzsche book, uh, Beyond Good and Evil. I was like, what is the big deal with people loving this book? No, I had a shit translation. The Penguin translations of most stuff are a really nice place to start if you go down that road. And if you don't want to read stuff, yeah, if you don't want to read stuff about Marcus Aurelius, then just watch Gladiator. And, <laughs> and even even if you like reading, also watch Gladiator. Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred um, percent. Yeah, and I think you know those books of you know kind of stemming in that kind of philosophical um, areas is a really good place, and again, something that people won't have considered when they're thinking, how can I become a better coach? What nutrition book do I need to read? You're like, no, it's a lot of it's people skills. And psychology is another cool area. There's a book I read recently. Because um, admittedly, like, I don't read tons of books of, you know, in these sorts of areas. It's um, only something I started doing more recently. And up until now, I've been reading, if I read it, it's more in the, in the realms of actual research stuff. And I, I'm more of a listener to things. So, like, Paul's book, for instance, was one that I really appreciated on um, the almost inevitable problem of anxiety and dieting. That was a very useful book for coaches. That made me a better coach. Um, and Surrounded by Idiots was this one I read recently um, by Thomas Erickson. And that's a cool... Very I really simple. wanted to say I wrote that as well when I joined the Muscle Mentors. Uh, this book called Surrounded by Idiots. I don't know why I wrote it. When I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a very kind of easy read, pretty fun read and simplistic model of human behavior um, and personality types that is a really cool resource that, you know, for when you're dealing with tons of different people in, in your job, as, which you inevitably will in your job as a coach. And you've got to be like, okay, I've got to deal with these people differently. I've got to kind of meet them at different points, communicate with them in different ways, understand their behaviors and, and kind of make sure that you don't interpret things the wrong way and make sure that you can understand why they may interpret some things you do in the wrong way and things like that you know it's um that books like that are really cool um so i'd say i recommend that that definitely made me a better coach and then one, say again no, no, no. Uh, no, so if, if all else fails read hobbit 
yeah, I was yeah. about to steer it that way. I was like, yeah. now the book that really made us all better yeah. is The Lord of the Rings. It absolutely yeah. is. And The yeah. Silmarillion. If you really want to challenge yourself, read The Silmarillion. <laughs> to this day, it's the most yeah. difficult book I've ever read in my whole life. Or The Silmarillion. It's unbelievably hard to read. Oh, hard. I thought you said it's the best book you've ever read in your life. Oh, I know. Unbelie- it's unbelievably difficult to read because it's all kind of written as if it's like, um, like, like almost like a holy text. You know, like it's kind of written like the first kind of couple of like hundred pages. It's, it's like the story of how like Middle Earth was created. Like, so it's all about the songs of the Ainur and it's very, very confusing. <laughs> so if you don't actually understand it, you're sitting there going, what the fuck is this? If anyone likes it, I think they've got that on one of my favorite new finds lately for book stuff. There's a website called The Folio. Society. Well, they have the Silmarillion on it. I think they've got a copy they've done of the Silmarillion. Jesus. But they do their own version of a whole load of different books that they'll do in hardback format. They get their own illustrators and stuff in. They're not cheap and they only release a finite number of each type and then they'll move on and do a whole different range, but they're so cool. So the Folio Society has nothing to do with you being a good coach, but it will make your bookcase look awesome. Yeah. I was going to add another one there. One that I have yet to read, but I know it is has the potential to make me a better coach. So I've had it on, it's been recommended by a few people. I mean, Paul, you've probably read it. It's called Deep Work. Have you oh, I've not actually read it. No, so I've literally got it here. People don't see it. It's by... Called Deep Work. Uh, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World by Cal Newport, if you want to see that. And it's, um, it's basically, apparently, if you're a prone to procrastination but also just someone who is fairly busy and you need to kind of be as productive as possible it's awesome and um yeah so that's one that is on the list um i mean we could go on all day on the book front yeah this is i mean there's loads but i, I would still take away from it that look it being someone who reads books doesn't translate to you being a great coach no. there are plenty of great coaches who don't read one page that's fine. There are plenty of people who are super into books, read shitloads and suck balls. So you can use them, but they are only one tool in the in the arsenal that you're going to use as a coach. And, and it's, a, you know, because like you, I think you mentioned it just now that by reading, you're kind of being able to get access to other people's experience and, and knowledge and things like that. And you can do that in more ways than reading. Like we do that where we'll, you know, if you take part in education events and if you seek out mentors and things like that, there's a lot of people that will learn these same sorts of skills of how to deal with individuals and speak to them better and, you know, kind of understand psychology a bit more just from kind of seeking out mentors and spending time listening to them and learning from them on that on that front. Same audio, kind of thing. Audio books aren't to be dismissed either. Like one of the great things with audio stuff, and I listen to quite a few, is that you can do them while you're doing other stuff. So you've got a load of downtime that you can't really fill with anything else, like driving. What am I supposed to do while I'm also doing that? Not much, but I'm not that engaged in driving. And yet, so I can listen to things and I can take in stuff. Or when I'm on a walk or when I'm cooking, or you've got these activities that there really isn't much else you can do while doing them, but you can hear stuff. Now, in my experience, you don't retain anywhere near as much when you just hear it versus when you read it but that doesn't matter because you could re-listen to it or you might just pique an interest in a topic for you to jump off in and take a deep dive or for me i whenever i'm listening to stuff i might just pause it because i'm like shit that's a good idea for a topic that i want to talk a bit more about well that's a really nice line well that's a great way of that 
So there'll be lots I forget within audiobooks, but there'll be great little bits to jump off or it'll consolidate or I'll re-listen. And you've got all that extra time. Tactic for that is if you're driving along, I do this and there'll be like some really cool point that's made. And I'll just pick my phone up and just screenshot where it was. And then I'll know, I could, I might do that a few times, but then I'll just go back through and be like, okay, you know, an hour and 10 minutes and 38 seconds or something. You go there and you're like, okay, yeah. Write that down. I've done before as well, which is probably shouldn't do but is dictating to my phone if I have that. I'll pause it, open the like voice dictation bit so I'm not really using my phone and then speak at my phone. It doesn't require me to open my phone site. So police people didn't do this. This is, you're imagining things. Uh, admission, that's an admission of guilt. Um, that's not, that's not that was, I was trying, this is a dream, dream driving. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but yeah, you can dictate into that and then come back to it and tidy that up in, in kind of way. So I've done that a few times. Or you, you do just like, play you know the full full risk and just try and type it out um yeah yeah I, sometimes i even drive well, yeah i mean sometimes i mean I, I believe i saw you the other week paul driving along the motorway with your knees steering whilst you were reading a book yeah yeah full book read the whole thing that was pretty impressive you know <laughs> the police shouldn't even be mad they should be impressed i read a novel on the motorway while driving blindfolded with my knees i'm a jedi leave me be so on that note, <laughs> yeah, I remember That actually happened to me in real life before. I was driving to the airport with a friend of mine, and the car just started to get really shaky. I was like, well, I was I was like what's going on? I turned around, and he was sitting there driving with his knees as he rolled a cigarette. <laughs> 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 I swear to God, to this day, I give out to him about it. Every single time, mate, like, to this day, I give out to him every single time I see him. Oh, Why did the time he nearly killed me for a cigarette? <laughs> Uh, what was okay? That's probably enough on that question, isn't it? Yeah, there's a few books. Um, I'll try anatomy one in there just quickly, and I'd say if you get if you go down like getting Atlas of Anatomy, also get a skeleton because that's like the other component. Yeah. You, know, you can where you can see it in the in the kind of that's better yeah. than any book for your anatomy. Get a skeleton, stick yeah. balloons, balloons. Yeah, so yeah. which I had here was a skeleton. Yeah. It's not even close. Otherwise, you're just learning words. Mm. And too many people yeah. learn words, and then if I ask them, show me oh. on the skeleton where that is, and then they don't. And you're like, okay, so you learned the word, but you didn't learn the important yeah. part. A close second, if you can't have a skeleton, or if you're somebody like me who lives in a relatively small environment, what you can do is get Muscle Premium. It's a relatively yeah. expensive app on your computer, but it is very, very good. Or if you're Ross, what you do is you get your partner to get very lean for a show. Yeah, exactly. You basically use them as a skeleton because you can basically see all the muscles at that point. Yeah. And you're like, see that one there? there. The sharp, sharpie marker all over Grace about too. <laughs> but then just some people will be like, well, what's the point of just attaching balloons to a skeleton that's you know it's useful there? Like you can then move it around and see how things change in terms of what that muscle does relative to the axis it crosses and things. You'd be like, oh this thing around the shoulder if it does this and then if I move the arm up into this position I can see what I had a dude who messaged me and I'll actually just read what he said it was like a question for you uh, I'd stuck up a picture from Grey's Anatomy of a pelvis the, the actual Grey's Anatomy not the TV show yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doctor is McDreamy that's his name right here it's just a picture of Patrick Dempsey and I was like let's analyze Patrick Dempsey <laughs> <laughs> but the dude was like there's a lot going on here loads of lovely big words what way would you tackle learning this? Start with the big boys, like the acetabulum, the ACIS, the AIIS, and work your way down. Hard to really know how much of it is relevant, also from a practical perspective. And I voice noted him back, it was like, get a skeleton, stick balloons on, start doing what we've kind of just spent with. And his reply was this, Paul, I've spent four years doing a sports science degree, two years of which were spent studying anatomy as a module. 
this is the best advice I've ever been given regarding anatomy. Mm. Thanks. Like, you've got to make it 3D. It's got to be tangible and touchable and real because that's what you're doing. Mm. Books don't give you that. They're awesome, as we said earlier, as a reference. Mm. But unless you bring them into the world that you're working in as a coach, they're just fucking words. Mm. Here's the thing. You, you'd be like, okay, you know, dealt, like lateral dealt, the chromium to the devil, down to a tuberosity. You'd be like, oh, what does that mean? Like, like on, on paper, you're just like, but I would much rather can... someone be able to point yeah. to the bits of the bone they go from and to than to name them. Mm. I don't care too much if you can name them. It's useful to, for communication. And at a certain level of expertise, you should know them. But I would much rather you went up uh, from here to here. Cool. Because yeah. then you can see what it does when a muscle shortens along it. Yeah. And you can see, you know, what happens when you change the position of the humerus and all this stuff. And, and then you can be like, oh, and also this, the way this dealt, you know, the fibers are actually pulling. I can make sense of when you hear Paul maybe talk about compression. Like, I mean, we'll talk about compression, but you talked about it on the, you did a couple of posts where you're talking about, okay, there's components to the force of the thing. And when you can visualize it on a skeleton, then those concepts will make more sense rather than just being like, I just thought the dealt just pulled your arm out to the side. Yeah. So and I'm you sure. also see, and this is the really cool thing, because every book, I don't think I've ever opened a book and they were looking at a position that basically wasn't anatomical neutral. Yeah. Like the Vitruvian man, the man just stood bolt upright. Like, and it's really cool to see mm. that muscles do different functions in different positions. And that becomes really obvious when you've got balloons stuck on it. Because the cool thing with a balloon, it's elastic. It wants to shorten. It's showing you what that muscle wants to do. That's why, and when we say balloons, by the way, we mean the long, thin party balloons more than like the big fat round ones. They don't work that well for this particular thing. But you can then move the hip around, go up in the hip flexion, see what the glutes do in that position versus what they do when the leg is straight down. They do different things and you'll see it and it'll make immediate sense to you in a way that no amount of reading really conveys. So the thing I remember someone said, you know, for instance, if anatomical neutral happened to have been like involved a position of hip flexion or like it was like the fetal position they were like that's what neutral is and that's how everything was drawn muscles there's a few muscles that would probably have different names for instance like adductor magnus would probably have to be renamed extensor magnus because yeah, they'd be yeah. like oh well yeah this thing does some different stuff when you move this thing around you know and that's where that this whole uh, this whole uh, approach to learning anatomy comes in yeah. movement is key um anyway book's done dusted let's get past that shit um <laughs> client retention strategy so next thing there um it's you know how can we maximize client retention and also maximize the client experience what are our thoughts there you want to roll ross yeah for sure uh, just don't have any you can never lose them a hundred percent retention of zero baby i think honestly is gonna be your biggest one like being dead honest with your clients don't over don't oversell what you're going to do for them because from experience past experiences before i was on the team i obviously ran my own thing and i would like give people everything because my numbers were so low and um, i'd be able to give them like a massive amount of attention all the time you know multiple checkups a day that kind of thing i was able to constantly going to be on them and then, like, that's probably what a lot of people's situation is now. They're not maybe working with as many clients potentially we would be or potentially maybe where you will be in a couple of years' time. That your ability to then kind of maintain that level of communication with people is inevitably going to drop off. You're not going to be able to provide that much communication to people all the time. So I think setting boundaries so far is exactly what you're able to provide for people. Kind of, like, 
I don't like calling them rules because I think rules can, like, I don't know what kind of changes the way the coach is going to work for me. I think that establishing how you operate very early is going to give you an advantage so far as retaining people because they know exactly what to expect. You know, when you're looking at things, like, you know, like office hours, a simple thing like office hours that I did not put in until I came on this team. I'm just saying, I will be at my computer, you know, from 9 a.m. until about 7 p.m. every day. After that, I'm not going to reply to you. You know, and then also layering on top of that is that you may have to wait 24 hours for a reply in some cases just based off how busy I am. Something simple like that, it just takes the pressure off. Because if you're constantly able to, you know, provide immediate responses to people over the course of a couple of years, and then you start having, rather than having 10 clients on, you have 20, and all of a sudden it gets to 30 and 40 and 50 and 60, your capacity to do that is going to diminish. And all of a sudden the people who you had on originally are going to be getting a service that they didn't have before. They're going to be tent. They're going to be acting as if it's worse. You're probably inevitably going to raise your rates, and they're going to get less of a service. So you know, it's the whole kind of fundamental property of what you start doing is going to eventually disintegrate. So you know? Roth is kind of really hitting on a word that I, we might call clarity uh, yeah. within some of those bits and pieces. Now, when you're starting out, you're not going to have your systems in place particularly well, and you're going to have other problems. Like you probably don't know as much as you might need to know to really start succeeding with your clients. The good news, to some degree, is you're also likely to be working with clients who, in one level, aren't as demanding from the mastery side of things from maybe a mechanics-style perspective. These are beginner clients. They haven't really done much yet. You don't need to be overly complex with them with stuff. They're not going to need to know nutrient timing protocols and what have you. You're just going to need to get them aware of what they're eating and what have you. Now, I could counter my own argument and say that oftentimes those people have more psychological barriers uh, and things in their way than someone who is, let's say we were coaching Ross here, who's pretty committed to bodybuilding, what his goals are there. Ross will be, <laughs> Luke saying, yeah, maybe not, right? But Ross will be a bit more automaton-like in terms of tick these boxes, mate, and off he will go and tick those boxes, especially if we manage to sell it to him, that doing so will make him more and more like Aragon. Like that to him. <laughs> yeah. I Wait mean, my sword. Wait yeah, exactly. So there's, there's scope within that. And the only way of improving your client retention in those early years is going to be getting better at your craft. You need to be plowing time, effort and money into improving your skills. I just literally just thought just quick, I'm just going to interrupt you. Apologies. But on that note, if I like Cal needs to start referring, like using that, as an incentive and be like, if you do something well, he's like, that's an Aragorn move. And if you do something terribly, he's like, Ross, that's a, that's a Boromir move, mate. Yeah, that would piss me off. So. <laughs> There's an interesting thing that the boys are sort of hitting there, which is knowing your client. Yeah. And that means like actually talking to them and getting to know what they like and what they don't like and what they're going to respond to. And as funny as this is, this would be something that would actually improve the relationship between you and your client in a positive way where Ross would be like, this guy knows me. He knows I want to be out. I want to borrow me as a bitch. Right. So <laughs> that now that's not going to solve everything. If you're a crap coach and the only thing you've got is you can reference Lord of the Rings to him, he's not going to stay around forever, but it's also not nothing. It's still something. And I would say early on, have a system in place. Let's say you run, I write most of my programs for six week blocks. So we run six week, then we'll reassess. Do and it's a, it's a copy and paste job. Um, yeah, it's the same for everyone. I don't care what you are, what you're doing. It's the exact same. It's just goblet squats for an hour. Um, <laughs> but at the end of each six week phase, I will pop you over a, a type form. That's the feedback thing I use, but you can use Google sheets or whatever it is that you use and get feedback on what's just gone on. 
What did you like? What went well? What didn't go so well? How long did it take? How time effective was it? Is there anything you want more from me? I ask my clients within that phase feedback form, which is what I call it, like how well supported do they feel? Would they like anything else from me? They have weekly check-ins that include bits of this as well, but check in with them. Like ask them, are you providing them with what they want in their own words? Now, sometimes they're not gonna know what they want. This might be new to them. They're gonna get all confused. But you'd be amazed how far it goes towards client retention from just asking what your client's after and then serving that. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I want more of this. Cool. Let's go and show that. Or sometimes they'll ask for something that you know that's not really feasible. But then you've got a job there to educate them on what a more realistic thing might be or whatever's going on. So client retention is often failed by people because, A, they're not very good yet. That's, you just got to get better at what you do. Go and get involved in the portal, go to camps, go to things with people you think, oh, they're where I want to be or they're very good at this. And then communicate with the person because the person in front of you is different to every other person in some way. And yeah. the only way to know that is not through more education and more courses, but communication with the person. Yeah. And I think that's where, the, you know, because the question was, you know, how can you, max- or part of the question, how can you maximize the client experience? Some people, take maximize and they're like well that just means more that means more of everything um that means i need to give them as many things to track and as many variables to consider and as many gadgets and gizmos and as many things to do in the gym but that's not maximizing client experience and like i actually the other day was um going through my whatsapps and i was trying to find you know when you search for a word because i was like oh, i remember i sent a client something like this and i was trying to find it so i could send it to another client because it was useful for them and I found stumbled across a, a chat with one of my a client from a few years ago, um, and you know, she I remember she she dropped off fairly quickly, and I remember at the time I was like ah she's yeah, she's just not ready and you know stuff like this, and then I looked through I went looked through the, some of the conversations and it was like when I'd set her up and I was like getting her to track blood glucose and do all these kind of crazy bits, which at the time I fully believed in, but also at the time I was like that's just far too much. Um, and I was thinking, I'm maximizing the experience here because she's doing things she's never done before. But for her, it was just not appropriate, not what she needed. And that was where you know, the stuff Paul said was, you know, it's like meeting someone where they're at, like maximizing the client experience means maximizing the value. Um, yeah. yeah can, that, that, you know, and it's, it's a cliched saying, but less is more a lot of the time. But it's also just not less. It's just. And that, what's but like, it, it doesn't mean we need a hundred different approaches entirely because you can only have so many systems working for yourself but i would use in my own client application kind of form there is one of the questions is how much detail or data would you like to track all of it i want to know everything i possibly can the bare minimum but i want to get away with the least i have to pay attention to you can also have another one in there that's like the moderate amount somewhere in between those points or even another one which is whatever you would recommend because some people are going to be like, whatever you think is best, I will follow that. Other people are going to be like, nah, I, I could give. I have a client, an in-person client, who calls me briefcase because I like spreadsheets and shit way more than she does. If I asked Helen there to start tracking everything, she thro- she bought me a pillow for the new apartment I live in with a B on it that stands for briefcase, right? Because she is, she's very yogi and doesn't want to do any of that shit. And if the service I'm providing is about providing her with what she needs and wants, and I dictate that from my perspective, I'm not being client-centered. 
that doesn't mean we have to accept everything the client says. Because look, some clients are going to come to you and be like, I think this is the best way to grow muscle. And their solution is going to be yoga. And you're going to be like, well, it's not. Right. So you can have a conversation where you might educate them. But there's way more wiggle room in there than you would think. And as Luke touched on, more is not always the solution. Asking them, how effective is this for you? How time efficient? Am I asking too yeah. much or too little? How do you Goldilocks it? Yeah. And so when you plan your services out or if you, you know, you have like, this is what I can deliver. This is the max. This is the minimum. But the principles on how I get the client from A to B are the same. But like the tools I use within that process and how I communicate things and stuff, they, those can differ depending on the client and what they need. And you just think a client comes in where on that spectrum do they need to sit in terms of like, is it someone new, someone inexperienced, someone who's not into tracking data? Cool. They're going to be down here. They're still going to get access to your knowledge. You're just going to deliver it in a different way. You won't overwhelm them. Holy shit. I've got eight different checking sheets with a gajillion boxes to tick. And I've got three kids and a dog and I've never done this before. And I don't know what a macro is. If you're the sort of coach that thinks you can't get someone an epic transformation because they don't want to track blood glucose and HRV and resting heart rate and stuff, you, you've kind of got the wrong end of the stick because you should be able to get someone any result. Those are just little bits that give you you know, a bit of extra information that might inform certain decisions here and there, but ultimately you're probably going to end up doing the same stuff a lot of the time. Um, I've always been confident. Yeah, you get, right. you get reminded of the um, not everything that gets measured matters and not everything that matters gets measured. Like just because we can do a whole bunch of stuff doesn't mean we need to. But also, at least in my experience, most of the people who come to you, if, they want, if they've got an advanced goal, they recognize that they'll be probably tracking more things than yeah. someone who's got a, a basic goal. It's rare that someone comes in who's like, I want to be shredded, I want to maximize this, but I also don't want to pay attention to anything. I've never met anyone who was like that. They might exist, but they're pretty rare. Mm. And sometimes people, like, if it's the goal that they're like, you know, they've got a big goal, whether it's stage or something, you find that they generally will want to track more than even is necessary. Sometimes. So I was just going to say that, you know, that's, that often becomes an inevitability with these guys as well, especially if you have somebody who has past experiences, you know, and is coming to you potentially using assistance and stuff. And they're like, okay, there's a couple of things that we need to make sure we're looking at here that you don't really have a choice over. <laughs> you know, you've got to track these. Or I'm probably not going to be able to do my job properly. You know? I suppose that bit almost no different on some level than how many clients come and want a massive list of supplements that they should or shouldn't be taking. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You haven't understood basic nutrition yet. This doesn't matter for you. Yeah. Like, or certainly will make much difference compared to this other stuff. Yeah. So it's just where's the hierarchy of importance? And are we paying attention to the big rocks or the little tiny ones? Yeah. Sometimes the little tiny ones help the big ones fall in place. And I often argue like sometimes having a very structured plan, there's not too much special about some of the weird tiny bits in the structured plan, but that specificity gets more buy-in so that people nail the big rocks more consistently than if they felt like, oh, this is a bit vague. Mm. So again, it comes down to who's doing it and what do they think about that stuff? Yeah. And like, uh, yeah, and, and your ability to kind of communicate it and keep them on track. It's all good, right? I thought one thing I should add on the retention front, which I thought may be useful because like your experience, Ross, where you were saying you had maybe less people so you could give them more time. And then as you get busier and busier, some people, you know, a good idea would be, and and it's not so this is like kind of an abstract way of thinking about it in a way you this will rotate probably require some 
some of the people listening if they go down this route to kind of sit down and map things out and you'll find it isn't as black and white as i'm making it but if you say like okay maximal client like the maximum number of clients i want is 60 um if i am gonna you know how many how many to provide a decent service at roughly how many how much time per week am i gonna have to spend per client and if you do that if you if you figure out okay i want to spend 15 hours a week on coaching let's say or you said okay if it was that number if it was 30 or 40 hours and you had 20 clients you and you still were going to fill that 40 hour window if you had 20 clients you're going to be spending a lot more per client but if you keep that level of service and then you you add another 20 clients and you add another 20 clients you're going to be fucked so if you think i'm planning for 60 here it's the same when people make a business plan they think this is where i want to be so let's backtrack and make a plan that fits that so you think okay i want to have 60 clients i've got to spend maybe half an hour per client whatever it is when it comes to the check-in, you probably have to spend more in each setup. And then you can backtrack from there and be like, okay, I know even when I got 20, this is the time I've got to spend per client. And in that time period, that means there's more time that I can put into marketing and getting more clients. And then, you know, there's that way of looking at it. That means when you get to that number, you don't see that your quality of service has massively dropped off for the people that have already, you're already working with you. Cause that's Another one you can, you can roll with is when clients leave and they will, cause they'll leave for a variety of reasons is ask for feedback on why they're leaving. And it might be because they achieved their goal. It might be because they've just lost their job. It, it can be for a whole bunch of different reasons, but sometimes it's in there they'll give you some information where it might sting a bit because you'll take it a bit personally because it is a bit personal to some degree, but there's opportunity in there. There's opportunity in there for you to improve what you do, increase your ability to retain people in the future. And look, if you're going to run a successful business, retention is a huge part of it. Like it's so much easier to run a comfortable business where you're not stressing about money when people stay with you for decent chunks of time because you're good at what you do. Like if you show me a coach with a good retention rate, you're showing me a good coach on one level, at least on the level of relationship with the client. And probably more than that, because it's rare that someone stays with anyone for years. And look, some of my longest clients have been with me for eight years. It's rare that they've stayed that way if they don't value what you're doing. And it makes it way easier to not have to keep stressing. Oh my God, what have I got coming in this month? What's yeah. going out? Do I need to pick up more? No, I'm like, I'm close my books. I don't need any more right now. It's way easier to only need one or two because you're retaining the bulk than have to keep churning over. I need another eight each month. You're like, oh, that's going to get difficult for most people with a smaller following. And um, yeah, I mean, some, and that that approach and uh, the one I've I've mapped out, it will give you an idea of. And yeah, because some people, yeah, there's a lot of coaches out there I know that will just pluck numbers out their ass and like, this is how much I charge for coaching each month. But they had, they're not kind of basing that on anything other than this is what I've seen other people are charging. If you kind of go through a, a process of saying, okay, this is how much I'm going to spend on each client per month, you know what you're actually being paid for the time you're putting in. And because if you have like a client that you're spending an hour on each week and another one that's like 10 minutes and that which happens but you know your your hourly rate is kind of all over the place whereas if you're kind of like okay this is roughly where i need to sit and you know and then you'll know if if generally on average you're spending longer than you think you, you that's like okay maybe i need to put my price up and i know that they're getting a good service back because they're actually even giving them the time and all this sort of thing so it can inform that side of things which i think like, you know yeah Get, potentially even get a good business coach yeah. that will help you with all these systemized things. Yeah. They won't help you with the skills aspect, though mm. they should emphasize it. So someone like Ollie Carson is usually pretty great at helping people go through that type of stuff. So 
you're going to find that we recommend a lot of things that you're going to need to spend money on. But that's spending that money, I promise you, if you go and apply it, will speed things up so much that it will save you money by earning you more money in the long run than if you didn't do that. And he'll, he'll, he'll sit you down and I'm sure he'll ask questions and say, you know, and it's some, something I asked, I've asked a few people recently when they've kind of brought up these things of like, I'm struggling with putting my price up or, you know, what do I, what should I charge for my coaching? And I'm like, you know, how much do you want to be paid per checking? Like, what, what's your, what, how do you value your time like that? And they're like, well, I don't know. Or, or they, they've got a current model. You're like, well, how much are you, are you, are you working out you're being paid per client per week? And they're like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, there you go. You need someone to kind of give you some guidance there. Um, and once you figure that stuff out, it all becomes clear because then you can put together a map and a, and a game plan and be like, okay, right now I need to know what I do to hit these numbers and you know make it easier to think about retaining clients and things like that and all these sorts of things. Um, because that in itself is a client retention strategy when you're like, oh, I've got an actual thing in place that is kind of incentivizing me here. Um, but anyway, any more we'd add on that? Be really good at your job. Be really fucking good at it. To be like, fair, that is, the, I mean, that that's the ultimate thing of, uh, yeah, how to maximize client experience and how to get more clients. You hear that a yeah. lot. Yeah, like, you- I don't mean that as an some kind of like, you know, bullshit way of just saying that's the idea but if you're really fucking good at this you know you're very likely to keep your clients and give them the results that they need you know like a lot of people will just kind of bank on you know personality and stuff like that which is fine you know but until when you're actually put into the hilt of coaching multiple if not hundreds of people like you know we've coached hundreds if not thousands of people you know and you have to be able to be good at your job in order to do that because if you're not actually good at your job if you're not investing the time that you need to into your job and getting better at your job it will start to show and the cracks will never be started to show and you'll eventually just get to a point where you're not really coaching people, you know, and you're not spending time with people for any kind of considerable length of time. You know, you're starting to resent your job because it's constantly an inflow of people, an outflow of people. There's no developmental process. But one of the surefire ways for you to keep your clients is be really fucking good at coaching people. You know, it's probably the best business move you can ever make is be shit hot at your job. And um, yeah, and know when when you need to cool it as well. I think that's that's one of the things like, don't get sucked into the the hole that a lot of people get sucked into which is i just want to take on more clients and more clients someone inquires you're like well it's a client i'll take it and then you forget that you still got to deliver a service so you know it's like don't be afraid to stop your intake for a while if needs be to i admittedly i've had i was telling luke a couple weeks ago i had to stop my intake because things that i value very much so are tricking out the other side you know things like my education and stuff the time i spend doing stuff like this was being packed so for me i had to pause things peel it back again, kind of catch up, you know, and kind of tie up all the loose ends before I could start bringing people on again. You know, it's, yeah. it's- and, and that that comes back to the point of making a plan because there'll be some people that, you know, they have that plan in place and they'll get to that point where they're, they're getting inquiries, but they've already got their six clients and they're kind of not only, you know, they're covering all their bills, they're saving money, they're kind of in a position where they're pretty comfortable. And it's like they don't need the extra clients. And as soon as they start tipping over that, everything drops. So it threatens the current income they've got. So you're like, actually, it's being able to kind of put that thing in place and, and be able to be like, I know there's a client, someone asking for my time there and I could give it to them. But actually, based on the plan I put together, I'm all set. So, and that's when people then go, well, am I at a position now where I need to hire someone to work for me? If that's the case, you've got people coming in, then that's how you can be like, well, I can still focus on giving my guys the time. The downside for that is I actually doubt that that describes many of the people listening to this. Like those people. You'd be surprised. I know you'd be there for sure, but I would 
if we did a survey, I'd bet mm-hmm. more money that we'd have people who are struggling to oh, generate yeah. or keep than yeah. uh, the needed to take on a coach to work for them. Yeah, but the I know I I know there will be a handful that do, and they're kind of going down the route of, and that bit was for them. They're going down the route of more is better. And you're like, no, 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 yeah. But, but yeah, I, I would say for the people that aren't, yeah, obviously this, the other stuff will be the more useful bit there, but still making a plan. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. yeah. And, and then reevaluate a plan. Whatever, like, whatever topic we're talking about, plan a plan, go do a plan, evaluate the plan, yeah. is an overview of everything. Mm. <laughs> like, that's not unique to business. That's part of anything that you get better at. Yep. Plan, execute, assess. Sweet. Boom. So, All right. Next question. Back off sets, friend or foe? <laughs> I think Paul's actually got the actual question. So we had a dude uh, who was like, would like to hear your thoughts on back off sets, where and when slash when not to use them. And also, more importantly, how much of a decrease in weight percentage? So, Ross, you love a back off set. I do love a back off set. <laughs> For the whole percentage thing, I guess, when you start using that kind of approach, I think it makes the most amount of sense. You'll often hear the, the kind of standardizes about 20% back off. You know, that's normally where you'll see a lot of people kind of say that's kind of where you would start. And that's what it is. It's a start point. You know, like a back off set in of itself. Um, anyone who's seen me train, um, I'm quite vocal when I train because that's a word to use. I'm not necessarily sitting there doing calculations when it comes to, you know, what I'm doing following my top sets. It's more so a course of action that's similar to any other set you have. You're trying to progress at a rate that allows you to consistently provide an adaptation to get the goal, you know, and that doesn't necessarily always relate back to percentages. You'll often find like a kind of differentiation, if you will, that works for you. So for me, I have like a kind of rough drop off that always tends to work, you know, so wherever my kind of additional load, maybe on that back offset will be, you know, normally does the same kind of difference for exercise. That comes from, you know, like 10 years of training. You know, so what, what would you use? Let's say we've got a hack squat, yeah. Top set to back off. What kind of yeah, so there are some let's let's my last time the top sets, let's say I'm doing something around the, the course like seven plates normally on the side. Each week would generally be kind of the kind of load I'd be using on average on most of them just collated them all together. So normally I'm looking at the top set between kind of anywhere between five and nine. And then generally what I'll do is if I have a back off set, let's say my first top set was within that lower end of the rep range, nine times out of ten, that back off set will generally tend to either be within that kind of lower end of the rep range of the back off set as well. So if that top set is five to nine, generally a back off set tends to be about 10 to 15. I'll normally finish somewhere on that kind of 11 to 12 range. And within the, like a hack spot, I'm doing seven plates, I'll normally drop down to maybe six, maybe five and a half. You know, and you kind of base it off the amount of exertion that you had within that first set. So like most of the time in that top set, and you want to see me do top sets, I kick the shit out of myself. There's, I don't have the capacity to do that again, you know, and it doesn't serve me well to do that again, to absolutely bury myself. I'll get pretty close to it, but I don't absolutely bury myself like I did within the first round. One of the things you're noticing from Ross in that stuff is that he's got a rep range to hit here as well, that gives him some scope to adjust based on how he did. So if, for example, he dropped down to five plates aside and he ended up and he was taking them pretty close to failure or to failure and he got 18, well, that tells him something. If he knew his range was 10 to 15, shit, I got way more than that, which I'm happy to push to for this one. But I know next time I come to this, I can nudge that guy up probably quite a bit. If I shot over from 11 being the minimum requirement, I'm not fucking 18. Okay, that was too big a drop. So there's some aspect of experience that inevitably is coming from this, where you're going to tweak that and go, okay, that was too much. That was too little. What am I dealing with? 
I'll say one thing about backoffs though is that they're often not done. They're often completely fucked up and butchered. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. They're not done in the way that makes any sense as to what they're actually supposed to be used for, which would be, okay, I'm doing something that's actually less stressful for my nervous system here. What you find people do is they'll go to failure in a lower rep range, five to nine, and then they'll just go to failure in a high rep range. And the actual result in terms of what they have to recover from is exactly the same. And quite often you hear people go, actually the back offset's harder. It's like, well, I'm not surprised because you ended up doing more reps and you still went to failure. You could do a back offset in the set, like a back offset really would be like, I'm, I'm gonna stress my nervous system less. And you, and, and this is again why it's they're used by a crowd that typically will be like, I only train to failure. You're like, well, cool. Back off doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> you're doing a low set. A back off set really would be you're going to go to failure and you could do a failure in a five to nine. You could then do a back off in a five to nine, but in that set, you you leave two to three reps in reserve because that's the idea that you're going, I'm using, I'm, I'm, you could use lower load and leave two to three reps in reserve, but the idea is you're not taking your nervous system as far. That's, but you never see them used like that. No, so if we'd be accumulating um, work, we'd be learning and improving a skill, but we wouldn't be beating the absolute crap out of ourselves, which yeah. I think Luke pointed out nicely. So you could, back off. Yeah. yeah, so you could really, and, and, but I don't think there's any harm because, again, people that do go to failure, quite often they're only doing two sets and, and you know, there's a big movement. So it'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm doing a pendulum, like Ross gave that example, and I'm going to go to failure in a lower rep range and then failure in a high rep range. And, there's different things that potentially happen in the process of doing that and different tissues that might get recruited, especially if you're looking at your quads, your, your nervous system might, by the end of the higher rep set, be like, oh, you know, vastus medialis is getting quite tired here. I need to get vastus lateralis to do a bit more. And it took that higher rep range and that fatigue associated with it to get that. So what Luke is sort of describing there is different tissues within your body have the opportunity to yeah. cycle the nervous system output a little bit. So within your quads, your body can check, and there's no way of us knowing this without like electrodes in and on you, right? So you're going to have to sort of take our word for this to some degree at this point. Well, it's been a joke. Like, yeah. yeah. Of, yeah. Go yeah. Jogged, if you want to look at some more stuff. But if we just did a set of six to failure, we might not need to or get the opportunity to cycle through vastus medialis having to work and then switching over to a bit more intermediate, switching over to a bit more lateralis. If we run a longer set with those guys, we might take each of these a bit closer to their individual levels of fatigue. And that, yeah, and that's where like, when you look at groups of muscles, so, you know, hamstrings, quads, biceps, triceps, you know, they've got multiple guys doing the same thing over the job. It makes sense that the nervous system can be like, well, I'm not going to get, you know, if I am asked to go through knee extension, it doesn't mean, it doesn't follow that all my quads contract in the same level. It will be like, maybe I'll get, some two of the guys to do a bit more than the others and now you know whatever it is and these sorts of things are the basis why we'll see people with like okay this person has a weaker sweep on their quads maybe it's because generally it's harder for their nervous system to recruit that tissue it's not harder or their nervous system doesn't choose to recruit it as readily as it chooses to recruit others to do the job and to get that to get their nervous system to do it they need more fatigue in these sessions and maybe these back offsets and opportunities to do that or even then you're like maybe two sets isn't enough for them they have to go towards like doing four sets of the pendulum squat thing and doing a bit more volume for quads to get their nervous system to start tapping into some of these other tissues and being able to exhaust those guys to the same degree 
But the same token, like Ross put out a really great post, I think yesterday, uh, so June the 17th, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, just talking about often we look for these points of differentiation. Oh, we're doing this person's doing a back offset. This person's doing to failure. This person's keeping a little rep in reserve or two and is doing MRV and some Mike Israel stuff. This person's following five by five. This person's following 10, six, four. There are so many approaches out there. And Ross's point, and I'll let him waffle on about it in a second, is what do these things have more in common than just what do they have in difference? Because you're going to find way more in the similarity that is important than in the difference. Exactly. Yeah, I think yeah, it's it's real common. Like I think it's I think it's the nature of the industry to argue about these things. You know, and it's a bunch of fucking juiced up kids saying, "Oh, I'm bigger than you." Like you know, look at and like. Well, I think it's a scope that they can kind of recently. It's like when you're looking at all these, like you imagine there's a load of jack dudes in a room just kind of shouting at each other over who's doing the best. They're all pretty fucking big. You know, there has to be something you're all doing right. And like at the bare bones of it, that's the conversation. Like what is it that every single person within this room is doing that's similar rather than what they're doing that's different? You know, and when you go and you look a little bit deeper, that kind of led me down the hypertrophy rabbit hole not too long ago, you know, and you're thinking about these objective outcomes that we're looking forward to and then you're going to give an effective set. And you'll often find it's, the same kind of thing that we would look for, you know, these kind of this idea of kind of high levels of fatigue, you know, kind of myofilaments kind of like walking at capacity. And then you have this idea of kind of like a, an a sort of involuntary contraction velocity kind of slowing down, all these kind of things. Like you're like, okay, in what world do any of these programs not allow that to happen? And you'll find out within pretty much every single one, they happen, you know, and that's where you start. And this is the whole reason why you see the fucking the big giant idiot dude who just swings shit around being pretty jacked, they can't take away from back. He's putting on shit and other drugs, but like this is why they all kind of seem to do the same thing. This is why they all seem to progress because that kind of objective outcome is something that they can all reach, you know, irrespective of how you do it. And then you need to look at okay, then what's the best one for me? And you know, you've kind of answered your same question. You need to figure it out yourself. You need to figure out okay, what is it a that you enjoy because preference is huge, but like, you shouldn't be doing something because someone made you do it. You know, you should be doing it because partly you enjoy it. You know, and you need to find out again what's your individual recovery capacity. You know, there are individuals out there who just you know, will not have the capacity to recover no matter what you do in these higher intensity environments. Like I'm somebody who I can recover for quite a short period of time. But like, again, Cal will tell you this, that when I get to the point where I can't recover, I know about it. Like I need like a full 10 days off. You know, I just, I just, can't, I just can't get back in there. Like my whole body just, you know, yeah. at the same time, I can turn around and change that. But I really love training that way and it seems to work. You know? If someone gets more advanced, it's going to take more out of them when they start doing this. The loads they're dealing with really change stuff. You know, I know when I was younger and starting out and starting to read about things, and there were lots of stuff on percentages. Oh, you should be able to do, you know, five reps with 85% of your one RM. It's like, that's a good structural balance, isn't it? Yeah. yeah <laughs> but you go like, okay, that might be true at a certain point, but am I supposed to, if I'm the world record holder in the deadlift, am I supposed to be able to do a double at 90 odd percent of my one RM? No, does that mean, how long would Usain Bolt have to rest after his world record time before he should be able to do it again? At a certain point, percentages of these ideas don't work for the advanced trainee. And even if we start back then and look at the beginner, like three by 10 as a method came after the second world war. It's a guy called Thomas DeLorme, if you've ever looked at DeLorme, three by 10, working with people who were really badly injured and fucked up. And it's actually where testosterone starts being used as well is, post second world war recovery for vets who lost limbs or atrophied a lot of stuff and had some awful things happen to them. turns out he found this weird thing of three sets of 10 that gradually increased in load 
did wonderful things for helping these people recover and regain function. And we've almost moved away. Almost no one likes programming three by 10 anymore. That's way too basic. But it works just like two sets of shit to failure works, just like five by five works. All of these things emphasize lifting some stuff, doing it over time, getting stronger at it. We might emphasize some mechanics things where we like also pick something that suits your structure and suits you and doesn't beat up your joints and stuff. But fundamentally, you're going to be doing that and getting stronger at it. So the commonalities Ross mentioned between all those approaches, like what's the common thing they're doing? They're all applying force to their anatomies yeah. one way to some intensity. And then progressing it. And they're all and they're, yeah, and they're all functioning and that intensity is all on the same spectrum, whether they go to failure or not, like you know, the failure group are still talking about they're talking on the same spectrum that the reps and reserve guys talk. They're just biasing the very end of it. Like and unsurprising, look, if you take it to balls out death, it's shocking, you won't have as many sets in you. I know that's crazy to realize. But it's not the moment you go in and do one. You're like, oh, I don't have many of that. It's that kind of inverted U, if you kind of, right now, it's more probably like an inverted S, if you really want to look at it a little bit deeper. Like, what, like the higher your volume capacity, the, you know, the intensity level that you're going to be able to bring is going to be lower, inevitably, because you're using more volume. And on the other side, the higher intensity you bring, the inevitably, the inevitability of your volume being lower. At the end of the day, if you're looking to grow as much muscle as you possibly can, there needs to be accumulation, effort, recovery, and repetition. At the bare fucking bones of it, we can sit here and we can talk about the physiology all day. And I love talking about physiology. I love talking about mechanics. Well, and let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> At the bare bones of it, anything you do when it comes to growing tissue, it needs to be accumulative. You need to reach a high level of effort. It needs to be repeated and you need to be able to recover from it. You know, you know that's the kind of things you need to be able to do. And then how you kind of fit into that, as I said, Luke said, the spectrum is kind of down to your own discovery. And that's the, that's really, as I said, that's not, that's not the pain of it. That's the beauty of it. That shit makes me so happy. The fact that I can go in I can do one thing and then I can go and do another thing and I can get a similar response that I really want to do. I think that's a, I think that's a quite a beautiful thing that your body's able to do. And it tells us more than what we all disagree with. You know, so stop mm-hmm. arguing about programs, start looking at principles, start looking at physiology, and you'll start being able to discover a lot more about the opportunities you have to progress. Because as soon as you get into that kind of di- like that kind of dichotomy of like, I need to be doing it this way because this person does it this way or this person does it that way, you're already selling yourself short. So, for example, somebody like myself, even Callum is probably a really good example, and um, maybe not now because he's not yet at the moment. But like when you get really, when you get really, really strong. You know, like Paul mentioned that when you're working with loads, you know that are just like you know, I don't say inhuman, but they're incredibly high comparatively to maybe the normal human being. So I, I'd be I'd be somewhat strong and I'd look at the higher range of the strength spectrum relative to my body weight. Unless he's on a Boromir day, in which case, yeah, 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 in which case I'm just like sitting there getting shot in the back and stuff and being. <laughs> my capacity for progression within those higher thresholds of load are just going to be, you know, so high. And then the progression they're going to be able to get is so minute, you know, that that kind of principle of all oh, going to balls out failure, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I just don't have the ability to do that. For me to actually accumulate that just makes no sense. If I can peel that back, understand that there's other avenues for me to take, you know, there's multiple roads to hypertrophy land, you know, and where you kind of go and the road that you take is relative to what situation you find yourself in, you know? So, if you can kind of open up your brain a little bit more, go, okay, there's, oh, there's multiple avenues I can take. You can essentially jump from one approach to the next relative to the point that you find yourself on. So Dan John says it kind of really well. It's like everything works for about six weeks. Yeah. And you need to change that. So with these bits, it's like, look, there's nothing stopping you running an intensity phase for a few months and then going to a volume phase for a few months. That's an old Poliquin idea of accumulation and intensification. Works really nicely. Some people don't like doing that kind of stuff because some people are obsessed with training to the death. Those people trend, tend to not trend. So those people <laughs> trend to not um, tend to not do that. 
for a decade. It's rare that I've met anyone who can train with that intensity for 20 years without taking these periods where they need. And it might be so Ross was there, like I might need 10 days off. Well, someone who's not pushing the intensity might not take the 10 days off because they don't need to in the same way. And if you're going to be training till you die, which hopefully most of you listening to this will be because this is a part of our lives. Well, it might be that we can train with balls at intensity when we're in our 20s. But when we're 40 and we've got a couple of kids and your hip hurts and you've got this kind of going on and you've got other things in your life, maybe you need a slightly different approach. Mm. And there's lots of scope within this. Hopefully what you're taking away is there are so many options. There's no one right answer. It's try that. If it works and it's working, run it until it stops working and then tweak something. And what you tweak, that's a whole open field of options for you to play with. I like the, the fact that it started with back offsets. Yeah, that's, that's always what happens. But I guess they're going to just go back to something quite bad. Like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, the idea of changing your mind, isn't it? Yeah. The idea of changing the way you think. Because again, we're, we're in the, at the moment in the, in the industry. Like, and I think it's good. I think it's a good thing and necessarily a bad thing. You know, we have groups of individuals who, you know, are interested in one style of training, interested in one style of learning. You have like, large masses of followings. We then follow that as well. You know, I think the, I think the real kind of sign of knowledge is the ability to change your mind. You know, I got changed my mind on a lot of things growing up. Do you know that kind of way? Like when I was getting into the industry, I would have had thoughts on training and nutrition that I don't have now. You know, and the the signs of me progressing as as an athlete and as a coach have been in my capacity to change my mind about things. Yeah. Although you, know? you have changed your mind about the Hobbit. Yeah. No, it's still the greatest book in history. Say that. So the takeaway from this part, like back offsets, are they good or they bad? Ignore all yeah. the nuance that we just mentioned. They're great. Everything works. Literally everything you works. don't have to do back offsets just because you've seen JP and Co using back offsets for yeah. the record. Yeah. But there's also nothing wrong with them either. And you can, you can as well. This is going to blow people's minds. You can do the higher rep set first and then do yeah. the set. So does that make the back offset? Awesome. Some really angry oh, meathead just going, no. <laughs> <laughs> you could also you could also do the like two sets that are both the same rep range or something and you go to failure on the second set and not the first set you know you can do holy holy shit bro (laughs) but yeah it can be done um and that's we we could probably come up with just a a really very valid point i know we're joking we could could probably come up with some kind of approach to training that would achieve a similar outcome right now just thinking about it i I, quite want to write like a spoof like program that's like if you buy this you're gonna get jacked and it's literally just like a, a program sheet and it would be like chest exercise and it's like you could do that you could do that or you could do this or you could do this one or you could do that. Like, <laughs> yeah. this, this technique like, yeah. yeah, well, which do i do but like they they kind of all work depending on how you used to yeah. <laughs> imagine somebody just got so lost in that though in their program they're like i know everything works i know everything works this i'm surprised like, no one has done this kind of approach yet there's an old like olympic weightlifting wave loading approach that no one seems to play with anymore where you might do let's say a heavy ish set then you do a back off set with some pretty light stuff and then you come back to another heavy set and then you go back to that. Yeah. i'm surprised no one has sort of brought this in where you'll do a hard set then you'd actually have to do it like a back offset, as Luke described it, meaning easy, and then rest a bit more, and then do another really hard set. I'm surprised no one has bothered to bring that. Let's, again. Bring, let's bring it. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. Yeah, the wave remember, yeah, remember five, three, one wave loading. Is remember that? Yeah, remember Jim Bendler. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I was like very first job. I did that for ages, and then six, twelve, twenty-five. Um, I remember doing five, three, one, and then also discovering 
five four three two one. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. squally. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we could just just go on all that like different ones there, just count down from the thousands. Each time I did one of these, I was like, oh, this must be the one. None of yeah. them were the one. <laughs> they were all fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point, isn't it? Really? That's the real closing point here is that like all of these approaches are going to work if you're able to apply yourself to it. Yeah. And then the preference things comes in. Like Ross, yeah. you know, he has this thing where he's found an approach that he loves. And he, you know, there's some certain trade-offs associated with that. Great. Like yeah. he can at least he's aware of them. Yeah. Exactly. But, but then that's where when you're a coach and you have that preference, don't try and bulldoze it on someone that might not. And have, have, that have, by communicating have multiple different things that you can use, and that's where this comes in because you'll be like, But if clients come to me, they need to be expected, like, they need to expect to do top sets and back offs how I like to do them. Be like, Well, you're gonna lose a lot of clients, mate. And then we come back to client retention, and then unless because this will you'll find some people who they've got a big following, that's what they do, and when people come to them, that's what they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah but then but then that's the thing. We're talking to the people who aren't those people. <laughs> Yeah. We're talking to the people that might emulate those guys. We're like, well, they're successful and they do it this way. They're, they can get away with doing it that way. But all you do for that is you just ask the client, what do they want to have the experience like? Yeah. But, then he, and then, but then also, and this is where people are now maybe confused because then you've got to realise if you ask the client that, they might not know slash they might give you a shit answer. They might be like, oh, well, I love to do 10 sets of 10 back squats to failure. But I, And then you look and you realise, but I think that's the thing that's fucked your hips up, mate, and your back. So am I, I know they like to do that, but maybe I won't. Yeah. <laughs> 10 by 10 hack squat. I'm going to fucking do this. Sitting there going, It is one of the funny things with that is not that exact thing there, but you might need to meet someone a little bit just forwards of where they are. So let's say someone loves GVT Mm. and they think they're going to failure all 10 sets because no one's going to our level of failure on 10 sets of a day. GVT is 10 sets of 10 for those who don't know. Yeah, yeah. So we might go, okay, this person clearly likes a higher volume thing. Let's maybe meet them there. Why don't I add in, instead of beating them up that way, I might add in some drop sets or some rest pause sets so they get that experience of, fuck, I'm dying a little bit with a bit more volume than I would ideally like to give them at this point, get them to experience that and just nudge them down towards me and where we kind of want to meet as we go whilst educating them. And then you'll be fine. I did that. I did something similar with someone once similar. It was just on that like concept where they enjoyed doing that sort of thing, but slash it was quite an interesting way to get them to be at where we Still did 10 sets of 10, but we started off at a really low intensity. And then we yeah. did the next set. And then by the 10th set, we were like, this is the set. But they still did their 10 sets of 10 and they got something out of each set. And they were like, okay, I'm, I'm demonstrating control. And I'm kind of I'm aware of what you're asking me here. And then it was like, now do it. And then It's like the that. same thing. Like Sometimes we see in person when you're coaching, your job isn't to solve every tiny thing that your client is doing wrong immediately in one go. Yeah. Like you'll just confuse someone if you give them a bajillion cues. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you need to go, all right, this is where they are. They're unwilling to change too much of this immediately. So what little tweaks can I get to this right now that are going to work and then add and add and or take away and take away whatever needs to be for the client in front of you. And there's, there's no great rush unless they're literally on fire. There's no great rush to make them perfect straight out of the gate. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Beautiful. Exactly. Let's wrap it up because we yeah we've been going for an hour there so let's uh, we have one more but we can cover that next time. Yeah. Thank you for listening, everyone, and thank you you guys.
for your time and wisdom. I'm so glad you're alive now, mate. Uh, risen yeah. from the dead, Senior Hoffman, um, yeah. JC himself, uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. So uh, actually, I don't want to call you that. That's giving you way too much coolness. <laughs> As we say with a skeleton just like looking down on me, I'm like... <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, thank you for listening, people. We'll see you on the next one. Hey, people. Thank you for listening to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health orientated products, you can use code Muscle Mentors at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new pro prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue light, blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day -day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.